Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. James, how are you, sir? Good, thanks, Chris. Always good to speak to a fellow bootneck um, and finding out that, you know, yet another one of us has made it into the media and online industry. <laughs> yeah, it's a, 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 a meagre foray, I, I suppose you could say, but uh, it's all exciting stuff. I have to say I'm absolutely honoured, James. I really am. Um, for so many reasons, not least of which the work you're doing to protect wildlife. I was just watching one of your videos there with the lions and I've lived, lived in China and um, kind of the odds are stacked against these beautiful creatures. Um, so just for that alone, you're, you're an absolute hero in my eyes. But, but then, of course, you've also packed... 10 lives in into one <laughs> which is quite 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 incredible what's your what's your life philosophy if if, if you have one well yeah, the first thing i'm going to warn you off for, for throughout the show you might hear some strange meowing noises we rescued a stray cat in the last week this thing was on its last legs cut up hadn't eaten for months and we managed to trap it take it to um a rescue center so he's now wandering around the house uh, he's recovered been neutered had teeth out is really in bad shape so we <laughs> we've been doing a bit of home pet rescue so that's the noise in the background should anyone ask so um well at least it's uh, at least it's not a lion <laughs> <laughs> well exactly but to answer your question yeah i mean i've always been active um and I think that's sort of the, the makeup of my personality. I, I have to have many things going on. Otherwise, you know, I, I, I slip into sort of dark places. And, you know, I, it's, I, have, I have sort of packed in a lot, and, but my mind's always thinking about what I'm doing next. What it's taken me a, what, what's taken me a long time to realise is, 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 and I think a lot of military people have this, is purpose in life. Why do we do what we do and you know i never realized when i was in the military we, we're bound by an ethos and companionship and that they give you this sort of sense of identity they give you that sense of purpose and when you leave the military you don't have that you're suddenly left almost naked as a person without purpose or direction and whether it's right or wrong the identity or the causes you get involved with in the military um you have something you have a reason to get up not just that, they look after you, don't they? They give you everything you need, training in almost every environment. Um, it, it is perfect for somebody like me that's sort of on the spectrum of attention deficit hyperactive disorder, what do they call it? I call it a superpower, ADHD. But, you know, they give you this whole environment. You leave, you don't have that. So I've had to create my own sort of interests and passions since I've left. Um, and I've really matched up what I did as a child. I always loved being outdoors. I love animals. Um, using the skill sets that I've developed in the military and that's sort of come together quite extensively, extensively through the charity work I do for Veterans for Wildlife and now the, the TV and online 
media work. I do campaigning against illegal wildlife trade and, and making making documentaries. Wow. <laughs> I guess another thing, James, we should point this out because for our friends at home, we are in a crisis at the moment. We're, we're in an epidemic, an actual real epidemic of veteran suicides. And um, I think another issue is that time while you're in the military, you're doing military stuff that requires hands-on, direct military thinking, right? Here's a task, go and do it, right? When you get out and you've had that umbrella kind of looking after you and taking care of your needs and you don't have to think about this, that, bills, that kind of thing, it, it stunts your growth from a kind of spiritual development perspective without trying to sound kind of hippie or anything and so you come out to the reality of civvy street don't you and it's it's um it's quite a shock it is it's, it's a really interesting point to say stunts of growth because i do think you know for military to function to organize a large body of people um to achieve a task you do you can't have too much creative thinking. You can't have too many people that are entrepreneurial doing their own thing. You have to have discipline and order. At the same time, that system stifles, I think, innovative, um, creative potential that people have. Um, so exactly as you identified there, so I don't know that cat's got particularly loud right now, <laughs> but um, you know, it, it's really true to say, you know, you do, you, you're almost missing 50% of character if you go from school into the military and you're trained into that system, you're trained into a way of thinking. I have always thought that the military would be better if it allowed people to, to be trained into the system but take long sabbaticals into the civilian world. And it could be any industry allowing them to come back. But we don't really allow that. You know, you, you miss the boat, you'll, you'll miss the... Um, you'll miss the, you know, the promotional um, system and it'd be very difficult to go back in. But I think it would benefit enormously, especially in a world that's so much um, more connected. It, it, it's changing all the time. To have people trained into a system where you only think in, in, in one way and you only talk to the same type of people from a very similar background, you know, that's always going to stifle initiatives. So I think you know, I, I talk to people in the military and they always talk about trying to think outside the box or think differently, but actually it's almost impossible if you've only been trained to think one way. That also links into what you're saying about, you know, um, depression or, 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 the, or the issues that people have when they leave the military. You know, they train you into that system. They don't train you to be a civvy. They train you to be a warrior, but they do not train you for civvy street. And that is, that is a problem because you're trained to think within one, one system to operate in one way, but that is not applicable to most jobs, to most roles in, in normal society. And not just that, you don't have that support system. And I, I can remember the year after I left uh, the military, I was still in the reserves, but I didn't do much with that, um, getting very ill. I, I got something like, I don't know, a, a norovirus or something else. I remember waking up on the floor of my flat, surrounded by horrible liquids, thinking, what do I do now? I had no registered doctor. Um, you know, there's nobody I could call on 
immediately around me um, because I hadn't had never thought about I'd never paid council tax I'd never thought about any of these these boring bits of admin which everybody else learns at a young age not because we not had to and so I think a lot a lot comes it comes down to you know people think that veterans are sort of wounded or wounded or mentally deficient actually I think it's a lot simpler we've been trained to, to work in a system and we've kind of almost been released into the world without being retrained to understand, you know, life is more complex uh, or, or complex in different, different ways than we are, have been trained to think emotionally uh, and intellectually. Yes, very good point. Also for people like myself, a big part of the reason I joined up looking back, obviously using hindsight is, is a dam- very damaged childhood. And of course, all the time you're in the military and in, in a fortunate way, I only did seven years. So had I done 22, gosh, things might even have been even more challenging in, in, for my, um, you know, my entry into Civvy Street than they were. But you, you come out of that very sheltered being looked after period of your life. And suddenly the issues that you had as a, a child from a, from a damaged child are still there. And on top of that, you've got the bills, the mortgage, working for a civvy boss that, that is, is very different experience, surrounded by people with a quite a different value base to you. And then you've only got to start doing that to kind of get over your anxiety once or twice. And that becomes habit forming. And before you know it, everything spiraled. Um, but yes. Moving back back to yourself, James, you you certainly, I mean, you you've certainly made a go of it. Let's say, what what I'm fascinated to ask is, you not only joined the Royal Marines as an officer, but then you went into the SBS, which to me are almost the two holy grails of of well, they are two holy grails. <laughs> Um, I never really had the confidence to consider either. How, was it? Were they big decisions, or or were they just like, no, I'm I'm a driven person. I have to do it this way. Well, I mean, the first thing I say, I only say publicly. Um, I've only, you know, I've got an agreement with the MOD, and that I I can say I was in, and and I won't discuss my operations or anything I did. Um, because that's just that that's just the what you sign up to. Um, yes, I was in, and that began. This whole process began when I was, you know, roughly 13, 14, sort of working out what I wanted to do with life. And that might sound early, but I just I I've always been quite focused um, and always had a vision. And I I had two visions when I was a kid. One was to go to RADA and become an actor, Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. And the other one was to become a soldier. Um, and, and, and that began, um, I suppose, I, it really began, I went on a, my parents took me on a trip to, and I learned to dive um, when I was 13. Dive instructor was really inspiring, hard guy who'd been in the Navy SEALs. And so, you know, on one trip, I learned to love the underwater world. I, I gained this love for sharks and all, three, all things underwater. But I also just saw this, um, this person who was, who was inspiring, who you know had this this aura about them, this confidence. People looked up to him, 
in good shape and was, you know, had done thousands and thousands of dives and recreational dives and mili military dives. And I, and I, I remember being, as an impressionable kid, thinking, you know, when I'm older, I want to have that, that confidence about me. I want people to look at me like that, be respected as somebody, you know, as, as, a, as, a, as a former combat diver who now dives, you know, just for, for a fun or, and to inspire people. And it's incredible how that, that, that shaped me because when I got from that trip, I bought every book about sharks. But I also got into reading in that, that time, the Andy McNabb Bravo 2.0, and Duncan Faulkner First Interaction. And I read every single paramarine, SAS, SBS, Navy SEAL book I could get. And then I joined the cadets. And it was that time, sort of 15, 16, sort of shaping for me. I went from being a kid that was um, kicked out of class. Uh, I was put down a year when I was younger because it was just so disruptive, to having a bit more focus on studies, sport, um, and cadets. And uh, I was fortunate to go from uh, state school, I, because I was so so rowdy, my parents um, pulled out everything and put me to a, a private school, which had those facilities um, to keep somebody active like me, you know, engaged. And a lot of people don't have that, actually. You know, I had that, that I was fortunate to, to be engaged um, as a kid, going into a young adult, um, with the opportunities uh, to, to express myself and find something within my comfort zone. And the military gave me that. So I applied for scholarships to the Marines, uh, at six on scholarship. Um, and I did my potential officers course at 17 and I got that scholarship. And I also applied for the army um, for six on scholarship and I got that as well. So I was just on a bit of a, bit of a roll. Um, and, and I think the reason, you know, I, I, I went for that because, you know, I, I thought, you know, if you're going to go, if you want to be in the military, you've got to go for the, go for the top level. And when I, when I did the Marines training um, or the potential officer school, I thought this is, this is where I belong. And at the time, my parents wouldn't have been able to afford for me to go to university on top of the education that I'd had. So I, at the end of sixth form, I applied for the Royal, what was the Royal Marines cadetship. And there was only one in the country. Did the POC and AIB again, Admiral Interview Board of the Navy. And I was successful. I got that scholarship and that paid for me to go to Oxford. So, I've, I, you know, it was that later bit of life. Well, starting from 14 to 18 was very, very formative on what I was going to do, what I was going to be. Um, and then, of course, when you get into the military, they train you into the system and you're, you're absolutely at the behest of global events and what's happening. And I joined in the 9-11 era, 2001. Um, in September 2001, I'd done a first month of training before going to university. And I, I remember vividly coming off the bottom field after a thrashing with the batch, um, going up uh, to get some scram in the mess. Um, and the World Trade Center had been hit. And of course, from then on, everything changed for the Royal Marines and the British Armed Forces in general. So, and I was in the system, you know, I was being paid in the system. And I came out of university, that was it. Training straight to Afghanistan. Mm. My gosh, yes. Um, <laughs> I just want, I don't know where to begin, but can I just ask you about Oxford? How was that? Is it my, my um, very best friend Anton went to Oxford and he's explained it to me. It's like a series of colleges. Is, is this right? Or, or, or a series is probably not the, the right you get the impression Oxford's this big old kind of mansion house type building and but no apparently it's it's <laughs> a lot of 
sort of joined up colleges. Is that is that right? So Oxford, yeah, it is. I mean, Box and Cambridge are very similar in structure. I think Durham's the same. Uh, Oxford has, I think, 36 or more colleges. So you don't apply to Oxford, you apply to a college for a course that you want to do. So that cat is still going absolutely crazy. Um, so the college, the, the system, it, it's, it, it's strange in a sense, because you, I, I suppose people internationally think you apply to Oxford. But when you apply for a college, you, you also have a second choice. You get... Um, you, you send off your, your what I can't remember what it's you have UCAS points at the time you've got your own sort of personal statement statement you send off you have to get um you know three A's at A level at the time I know it's completely different now the system but then you go for this series of interviews it's very much sort of like the Royal Navy Admiral interview board where they they literally just sit you down with a professor an expert and they they you've they've already seen some of your submitted work and then they proceed to calmly take that to pieces and make you feel like you actually know absolutely nothing. Very similar to um, uh, the Admiral interview board, very similar to the way um, other selection processes work within, you know, the special forces environment. Um, you know, you, you leave this sort of, this, this, uh, this um, training or this uh, selection package just thinking, there is absolutely no way I belong in this institution or I'm gonna pass. Um, and, then, and then you wait for a letter to come through the post and that's what happened and I did get a place to study modern history at Oxford um, which is just an incredible time and, and whilst I was there I, I captained the, the boxing club the, the Blues boxing club so you know I spent more of my time probably DJing as a D, as a professional DJ at the time so I was out in the clubs DJing and um, boxing more I did more sort of outdoor activity stuff than I did um, uh, intellectual time in the library. Is there anything you, <laughs> I was going to say, is there anything you haven't done? But uh, no, no, let's, let's not go there. Um, I, I know you can't talk um, for operational reasons. We're not going to go into your special forces um, op secret stuff, as, as we say. But can you just tell us when you join the special boat service, do you... I mean, I'm guessing you do the same training as the men. It's all much more of a team sort of environment, is it? I just, you know, I know, I know everyone wants to talk about it. And, um, you know, I, I just can't because that's, that, that is this, the agreement we have. Um, but, you know, there, there are lots of books written about it. Um, yeah, and, no, and, no, let, let's move, move on. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. No, no, no not at all. I'll talk about anything in the Marines. But I just... I've, um, you know, I've had yeah. quite a few... Um, um, SF operators, so special forces guys on, and it's it is interesting which who divulges kind of what, and we have uh, we've only got ourselves in trouble once with the um, is it the DSF DSF the Department of Special Forces? Um, mm. Yes, we had our our hands smacked, but well, they attempted to, but. <laughs> I'm not a serviceman, so I'm, I'm. Uh, I like like to think I'm independent. But uh, are we allowed to mention your your medal? Is that that? Yeah, I mean, it's that. I was awarded the conspicuous gallantry cross. Again, I've not seen my citation for it. Um, I always, I always think, you know, generally on the whole, the whole medal thing. So I've I've written up uh, many people for for medals uh, myself when I when I was in the Marines. Um, you know, because I did three tours of Afghanistan. And I've always thought, you know, yes, there are always acts of valour and bravery, which, you know, you see people do some, 
incredible things in operations. But none of those would happen in isolation. You know, there's no sort of single James Bond character doing things on their own. It's always supported by a wider team. And everybody is always, you know, your entire troop or your company, the organization that you're with on that, that, that operation, they're all deployed in danger. And there's always multiple acts of gallantry or bravery. Isn't it? And, and what you have to do as, as an officer um, and working with your senior NCOs, you have to somehow at the end of the tour consolidate and choose between these many acts of heroism that you see uh, and then write that up um, so that, that, that there is recognition. And it's, you know, it's, it's a horrible process because very often, you know, there is very, diff very little in, in difference in what people have done. And, and, and of course, it's going to become divisive when somebody gets um, given an honour or an award when so many others have been in the danger, have been in danger, or done something very, very similar. So I've always taken the view that any medal is is a, is a sort of collective recognition of the level of that operation, the danger faced by anybody. So quite often, you know, these awards go to someone relatively senior with, or, or in a position of leadership. It might be a a full corporal who's leading a section attack. Um, it might, it's rarely, but sometimes an officer um, at this sort of troop command level in charge of about 30 people. Um, oh yeah, you know, sometimes it does go, they do go to, of course, um, you know, the point man of a patrol. But I still, and I always maintain that my award um, was for um, a, a collective operation, you know, the, the danger that everybody was in. And I certainly was by far not the bravest, and probably the, the least brave of everybody in, in, involved in any of the operations I was on. You know, I was just doing, I would say, a sound job managing some incredible warriors. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I always regret and wish that more people could be recognised um, beyond just getting an operational service medal. I always think there should be a, a more collective recognition. And the Americans do it probably better than us in that respect. Um, recognizing um, with with medals or, or you know other, other ways um, people contribute um, throughout an operation. Yeah, I was actually the bravest person in Four Two Commando, and uh, trouble is I never got any medals for it because nobody ever actually saw what I did. <laughs> so I'm I'm going to make my own up out of some milk milk bottle tops. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and you know, you know yourself, you know, chatting to the lads and afterwards, people, would, people are like, how on earth is that bloke carrying that medal? Uh, and, you know, what's interesting, if you, if you track the, 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 the careers of the people that have been awarded a, a Victoria Cross specifically, you know, they, they, it is actually quite a burden rather than, than something that's necessarily positive for their life. Um, and it can sort of divide them and... Um, and take them away from the, the you know, their friends and their, you know, the, their, the people that they worked with at an equal level because it suddenly puts you on this, this plinth, this pedestal. So, you know, it's, 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 an, it's not a perfect system. But I don't, I'm, I certainly don't have a recommendation for something to, to replace it. Yeah, one of my um, best oppos, so one of my best friends from the Marines, he, uh, he, he led what I think it was referred to as a classic section attack 
on the Alfar Peninsula. And uh, they were up against some serious, I don't want to say any names here, but up against some serious opposition. And um, yeah, just nothing, you know, I'm, I'm, I should point out, just, <laughs> just to clarify, I'm completely anti-war. But with respect to my, to my friend, I was very proud of him, James, you know. I mean, it's, it's a big old thing to fix bayonets and charge the enemy. Mm. And you're doing it leading, uh, he was leading a section and, and they were going up against numbers that went over, over a hundred. Um, yeah, nothing but pride. But one of the things some veterans don't do very well is the attacking other vet- veterans, isn't it? Um, I'm, I'm, what I mean is we're, you see it online quite a lot. We can be quite a sort of backstabbing bunch. That's an interesting comment. You know, I have been out of the military for a while, and what does break down is the um, the sense of honour and integrity that is a critical pillar of um, any regiment, corps, or unit in the British or any armed forces worldwide, you know, you need that loyalty um, and you, you need that trust. That, that does break down when you leave because what we, you know, what we described earlier on, which is, um, you know, being trained into a system, because you're not trained to be outside uh, in, in, in Civvy Street. I think, you know, people do struggle and it becomes every man themselves and when people get themselves into sort of difficult situations or they're struggling and they see others that are succeeding uh, or people getting you know jobs or roles that they think that they're capable of or they should be getting getting um of course that leads to to, to jealousy um and so yeah i do think some of the sort of the, the ethos uh, breaks down and you you're, you're going to see criticism but uh, you know that's that's not just veterans that's, that's every industry that's every sort of industry that um you can you can think of with it sports people business people and that's further toxified by the social media era um it's it's interesting because of course i i am now um in public life and you know generally being involved in the conservation world it's not something um that's particularly controversial um sometimes it is um there are some very divisive topics but you know, if you start commenting on veterans affairs or, or you know, operations, things like that, it be- becomes very, very divisive quickly. Um, and Twitter is the absolute worst. Uh, and actually, only in the past few days, I had um, somebody anon- on- anonymously who clearly was sort of involved at, at some stage of my military career, you know, giving me some criticism for um, some past actions of mine, you know whether they're fair or not. Um, I don't ever think it's fair to sort of air stuff in public where other people don't know the context or, you know, anything about what was going on. If you have an issue with somebody, do what you do in the, uh, the military, face up to that person um, face to face. But, you know, I, it's, I think it's always easy, you know, to, to focus on and, you know, criticisms of the military structures or, or people. But, you know, let's be honest, it gives all of us, has given all of us, so much. I would not change 
when I've done for the world, I, I have missed it for years. I, I absolutely love the Royal Marines. Um, and I think it's very important to detach um, you know, it's operations, whether they're Afghanistan or is an, a, Iraq or right or wrong, that was not the decision of the, the military hierarchy to engage in those operations. That's a political decision. But the, what it has given so many of us in terms of friends for life, in terms of training, in terms of self-confidence, uh, experiences around the world, leadership and management capabilities that are second to none, you don't find those in Civvy Street, that I, I still will recommend uh, a military career to any young person. Uh, and I still am incredibly proud of my service and those that continue to serve. So for me, the, the, the benefits absolutely outweigh uh, any negativity and I, and I know um, you have opinions about um, service and about um, the negative aspects of some of the operations we've been involved in but I do think it's important to to separate the political from um, from the, the service the people and the institution itself yeah I'm asked pretty much on a daily basis sometimes several times a day Chris I understand the world like this, but I really wanted to join the Marines, you know, and, and just, I, I kind of say exactly what you've said, but compared to working in an office when you're 16 or 18 or whatever the age might be for an employer that doesn't really like you, it hasn't really got your best, you know, yours and your family's best interests at heart. So you probably haven't got a family at that age. Um, and whiling away your day talking about celebrity come dancing on ice or what and that kind of thing the rule is is kind of like the better option <laughs> you know there is it's a bit of russian roulette there obviously if you do get if you do get deployed um but uh, yeah that just it puts more of a emphasis and a focus on our hierarchical structure to make sure you don't place these brave young men and women in uh, I don't know what the expression is but in danger for for the wrong reasons let's say um, let's move from war to wildlife because yeah. my gosh how did that how did you leaving the court oh sorry we've got we've got darks how did uh, how did you leave the <laughs> uh, if i don't move my my mouse every sort of i don't know i don't know what it is every 20 minutes or something i my my whole system tries to shut me down um yes yeah, the same. how did you go from the core into your wildlife career mm. well i left uh at early end of 2013, early 2014, I carried on doing some reserve service. But uh, at the time, I'd always intended on setting up a business more as a nest egg than a, um, anything I was passionate about. So I did fairly classic thing of going into sort of general security sector. And I set up with a, a friend of mine from the Marines, we set up a business called SFD Global, um, Security Force Development. I mean, it did, did just that. We, we've, we've been training um, uh, police and law enforcement for people in other countries um, in the early years. We got, we got involved in doing that sort of work. We never really got involved in the private, the security, you know, the Iraq um, maritime era. But 
but um, we 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 re- fairly quickly realised that you know there there was an opportunity to, to, to develop some sort of consulting business, and I teamed up with a, a very capable guy called Jake Hernandez from Control Risks, who headed up their consultancy in the Middle East, and um, we raised raised some money and we we launched a business called Another Day, and that continues today. Really, a really strong. Um, small risk consulting firm that's developing its own technology for helping risk analysis. So I did that that very standard natural step off um, from a military career into sort of what is a comfort zone where you're still attending conferences and dealing with people that are former military. <clears throat> you speak the same language. You actually haven't um, mentally have not made that step to to leave. Um, and I there was always within me at this niggling burning part of me that thought you know what how have I left one of the best organizations or you know the most elite organization in the world to then get involved in the security world um, which you know I know which I know we can deliver positive outcomes for organizations and people but it, it wasn't what drove me to leave and it wasn't what I ever wanted to do for life um, and you know I, I went through a very bad sort of mental period in that time um, definitely got on the, you know, the drinking and the partying scene um, and it, because I was lacking focus. And at that point, I bumped into somebody that was, was founding Charity Veterans for Wildlife. And um, it's quite interesting, actually. I, I, start, I got approached by a couple of, um, whilst as I got involved with Veterans for Wildlife, which I've come on to, I was also getting approached um, by a couple of production companies that are inter- interested if I, if I would do something based on my military career on, t- on TV. And in the end, it wasn't right for me. I just didn't, I've never felt comfortable really doing anything sort of about my military career um, in public or talking about it beyond what I did in the Marines. But it very, very quickly made me realize my dad's a cameraman. He's still one of the oldest in the industry, most established cameraman in the industry. He's been in it 46 years. And he, you know, he did, he was the first combat cameraman to film um, a live um, a live news piece from Afghanistan in the 80s when he was living with the Mujahideen with Sandy Gould. So it's sort of great inspiration to me and it sort of started to, fo- started to focus that, you know, actually I would be interested in a sort of me- media career um, based on wildlife to some extent. And the Veterans for Wildlife thing happened, you know, I got involved, started doing some strategic advice for them and I got deployed um, to go and do some ranger training. Um, training rangers in South Africa, and I think that was the, that was the pivotal point. I just realised I have skill sets that are, are useful for conservation. Um, I just loved being with the animals and with the rangers, people that really care about the, these causes. And I always had a camera in my hand, so I was just constantly filming what the guys were doing, the wildlife, talking to camera, um, and so the sort of kind, kind of natural sort of came together the the um, environmental work and my passion finding a new cause that I truly believe uh, need, needs so much um, work there's so much to be done combined with you know the the, the family connection from my dad of filming and um, and then the enjoyment of being being in wild places and using the skill sets I've developed in the military and the final piece of the puzzle I, I ended up on a, a diving liverboard trip in the Galapagos which is probably one of the most pristine Underwater, underwater wildernesses in the world. And I had a small GoPro with me and you know, I was remote, cut off, no comms for six days, just me and the sharks and the manta rays and you know, all the spectacular um, corals and marine um, 
the marine life that that, that is in the Galapagos. And there was no going back to an office. Um, it was at that point I realised that my life has actually got to be dedicated to communicating, um, telling people about um, the world underwater and on, on, on planet Earth, wildlife, um, and also the issues that it faces, and then campaigning and doing everything I can to, to deliver skill sets to people to look after and protect wildlife. So it, sounded, it kind of sort of morphed and grown over the last five years. But the two pivotal points really were um, joining Veterans for Wildlife and connecting with my old diving roots um, and, and just being immersed amongst 100 hammerhead sharks um, in the Galapagos, and there, there's absolutely no turning back. It's great, isn't it, when you hit a dive spot, and it's especially in a, in a, in a national park, so a protected area, and it's like nothing you've seen before. A lot of the tourist dive sites, I'm obviously talking to our friends at home now, um, are very uh, overworked, you can say. A lot of the corals been stomped on by novice divers. Um, the uh, place like the Philippines, I've dived in the Philippines. I think I saw two fish in a week week of dive, just, just two fish. All of it's been dynamited by the, the local fishermen. Um, you go to Thailand, like I say, all the coral's been stomped on. I think I saw uh, one shark, um, not really many fish, but one shark in, 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 in a week of diving in Thailand. And then you rock up in Belize, where it's been properly looked after, and you think you're you're in a blooming David Atten- Attenborough documentary. <laughs> There's sharks just swimming past your face. Uh, bull sharks swam that that far from me. You know the, the we shouldn't talk about sharks attacking men, but but it is one of the ones that has been known to, and it's it's so that far. With with another eleven sharks just swam swam past me. There's lobster, you know, lobster crawling out from under rocks. It's like being in an, an aquarium. And of course, you haven't got the cum, cumbersomeness of wearing a dry suit in uh, in such places. No kit, no extra kit. Well, you've touched on some really important points there. <clears throat> Diving, uh, there are overused dive sites. One of the dive factories in Thailand called Koh Tao. They always, they always talk it up as being an amazing place to dive, a place that's been decimated by divers. That's exactly the same actually in the Red Sea. I, I organised a diving trip um, when I was um, in the Marines to Hagada, and I've been to Sharm El Sheikh. And I, I went to Sharm at the peak, peak tourism time, and it's just completely annihilated from, uh, from over-tourism. Strangely enough, Terrorism combined with other factors um, in the Red Sea in Egypt. You know, it's, it, there was not over tourism, or mainly, mainly big explosions in places like Sharm el Sheikh have kept people away. Uh, and, and from what I hear, some of those sites have become, begun to, to recover. Um, and so, you know, they, they, they have repopulated. Uh, and, and it is interesting how quickly life on land. And at sea can bounce back if it's been if it's given a reprieve. Now um, it's interesting that the coronavirus lockdown we have seen evidence where areas have been left alone where there'd be usually a lot of human influence of of animals um, 
their behavior changing or then bouncing, bouncing back. Um, and and that, that's been positive. But at the same time, the lockdown has not necessarily been good for wildlife. Fishing in particular um, relies on regulation. So these marine protected areas, a lot, most of them are unprotected as it is. But the, the ones that are patrolled um, generally are effective. Marine protected, area, marine protected areas are effective protecting biodiversity and, and allowing um, recovery. What we've seen this week is images of the, of the Galapagos just on the edge of the, marine, of the marine restricted zone. 200 Chinese fishing vessels, huge, great things. And what they're doing is any time any of these species cross over that line, they're getting, they've, they've formed a ring of steel, ring of nets, and they're, they're annihilating them. And at night, we know that they make nighttime incursions into the, into the protected area. Um, and so they are, they are busy destroying one of the last natural uh, underwater wonders of the world because there is no, no protective um, official um, coastal protection vessels out there to, um, protecting those areas. And, and uh, this pattern is getting reported around the world. Fit the illegal fishing fleets uh, are, have less regulation on them and, let, and, and they, are, they are doing serious damage. The flip side to all this is I think coronavirus has generally flipped a switch amongst people that were um, perhaps on the fence or had genuine apathy towards the, the natural world and the, and the environment. And more and more people realize that things like pandemics come from our exploitation of the natural world. People are far more aware about issues of global warmings, whether that's, that's a intense hurricane activity in the North Atlantic, um, whether that's increased, um, you know, smogs across cities or, or just um, massive wildfires because we're getting such hot summers or the depletion of, of, of water reserves. And the um, it's things it's are changing. The temperature of the oceans, James, is it for the for maintaining the, the reef life? Exactly. And acidification, um, temperature increases are, are very destructive for coral systems. So, you know, on the one hand, there, there is, you know, we are in a horrendous situation. We've got seven and a half billion people on the planet Earth going on to nine billion people. We're all resource intensive. On the other hand, we've got a younger generation that is more, that, that, that understands uh, the mistakes that have been made and are activists. They want to see change. Um, but then you've got, to have the, you've got to have compliance or agreement with the, the, the countries that are responsible. We in the West are hugely responsible for, for depletion of the natural world. Um, and America under Trump has literally looks like zero interest on reducing its emissions or, or protecting wild spaces. And, and you can see China is, is far, far worse. There is absolutely no interest in the natural world except to exploit it in, in order to grow, in order to be a dominant regional and global power. And I think that sort of um, that, 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 that summarizes the future that we are, we are going into on, on an international front, which is this, this clash of cultural views, um, views toward not just the environment, views towards the way we treat each other as humans, um, the way our way of life, our political systems. You know, I have absolutely no doubt that we are now in a new Cold War. Mm. I've seen lots of poaching in my lifetime. A um, few examples. Of, I've seen poaching for turtles in, in, the, in a protected area in, I think it was off Chile. 
Um, I've seen the turtle's egg poachers, which is quite a common thing in, in around Central America, for example. Um, lobster poachers in, in Belize in the National Park. Just they'll drop drop off the boats as the tourists go out and the tourist boat will come back two hours later, say after a, a snorkeling trip, and they'll they'll pick up this guy that's just been snorkeling around for two hours and sneakily hide a bag under the you know benches on the back of the boat. And of course it's full of lobster. Um, I've been very privileged to scuba dive in Antarctica. And down there, these huge uh, factory trawlers. I mean, they are, they're, they're, they're bigger than office blocks, these ships. They go out and they work in, you know, they work in conjunction with one another and they scoop up all the krill. And of course, krill is the main food supply for much of the um, aquatic life and bird life, penguins, obviously, in Antarctica. Um, what do we think, James, then? Because I often talk about capitalism and it's not like a critique or anything. I'm just kind of highlighting. I think people mistake me, especially our American brothers and sisters. They think I'm seeking some sort of Marxist Orwellian future for us, for us all. And it's, it's not that. It's just that a lot of these communities that we talk about do live in poverty. And if there's a bunch of turtles eggs there that they can dig up and sell in the market or they actually sell them around the bars and they sell them with a bit of like soy sauce or, or, or something, right? Um, is, is there any answer to it so long as we have this system that, that kind of indoctrinates us all to be obsessed with accruing wealth? I'm not, I'm not sure the system, I think it's the it's intent, intrinsic nature of humans and all species which is to survive and thrive i mean I, I don't think there's any example in the natural world where you know animal communities or individuals don't seek the best nesting sites the best food sources for themselves that is the nature of the way we are, are structured you know the biggest lion in the savannah will want to he will look for he will want to dominate the best hunting grounds and he will he will look to to mates with the um the, fi the finest females, you know, and, and he will have a, a, a large pride around him, you know, and, and that is the luxury of being the most dominant character. And I think we, we found other means of, of creating that dominance, showing superiority, um, and, and unfortunately that, that manifests itself in consumerism. So I think, I think it's a natural extension. It just, it's about regulation and control. Um, but you, I think we're touching on something different there is, um, and abject poverty, it's very difficult to criticise people that, you know, that is a white rhino and, and that horn is worth more than gold or cocaine on the black market. Now, if you are incredibly poor, you have a family to feed and you've got low education, no prospects, in, the, in many of these communities that have abundant megafauna, such as a black or white rhino, and this thing, you know, lives within 50 miles of you. Very, you have to ask yourself, would you seriously not go out and poach it in order to survive yourself or for your family to survive? Um, I, you can't necessarily blame the, 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 um, put the blame at the door of the individual poacher. 
it's the, the system that, you know, the corrupt officials that then take that horn and it's the, 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 those people that are happy to ship it around the world. And then, of course, it's consumers at the other side that, that think that it's, you know, wrongly think that tr- traditional, um, um, traditional medicines actually have any, any positive effect on you or believe it's a, it's a status symbol. You know, the, the poacher that on the front line um, and the rangers on the front line, they are just pawns in a much bigger global system, which is, which is the illegal wildlife trade. So I think it's difficult to just be entirely critical of the individuals. It's certainly the system. But you've, you know, you're touching on different points here. One is, you know, the individual fighting for their own survival. The other one is, is, is the system. Um, and it's, it's so easy. I, you know, unrestricted capitalism, there is, it will, it pulls a lot of people out of poverty, but it, is an, it also traps people in poverty and, it, and, it, and unrestricted consumerism. There is absolutely no doubt it, it is responsible for the destruction of the natural world. And it's also responsible for many conflicts. Um, which is why the rules-based international order is, it, it is critical. Um, the Western creative, in my view, the Western creative rules-based international order. Now, I don't want to get into a massive critique of capitalism. You know, you know we all thrive by it. But I understand, you know, there are people, that, and, and it's generally in America, or hawks in America, or neoliberals in Britain and America, you know, who don't want regulation. They, they believe it should be a, a complete free-for-all. Um, and and they will think that anybody that talks, you know, even and I'm talking about general light guidance or regulation, they'll call you a communist or socialist. That's just a slur. Um, and you know, and I think most people recognise that we need to, we need need to live in a regulated world. And that leads me on to the sort of final point I was going to make is you know, and it's back to back to back to marine ocean conservation. Um, the high seas are totally unregulated, and um, they are a resource that have been depleted. We very very, very quickly need to implement an international system of regulation of not just coastal areas, not just marine protected areas, but the high seas. We need treaties. And that's going to strongly rein in uh, Taiwan, China, um, India, uh, Russia, and our own fishing fleets. You know, the Portuguese, Spanish fishing fleets have decimated the Mediterranean and the North Atlantic, particularly Mako sharks. Um, and it, there are a lot of vested interests here that are going to fight against it. But this is one of the big battles that we need to fight against. We, we, you know, we, we talk about wars or conflicts um, that, are hu- that are humanitarian in nature. And I think the next, the next conflict is, is natural resources um, for the natural, natural world. Th- those, are the, those are the conflicts, whether it's water, um, fisheries. Those are the things that, if we don't have regulation, are going to be I hope to see one day, you know, Britain leading, or soon actually, Britain leading the way, calling for regulation and putting our own Royal Navy, our own resources at the forefront of policing those regulations on the high seas. That would be a great use of our military. I'll be fully behind that. I just would like to point out um, for people listening or watching that when it comes to the rampant sort of capitalism, you know, how much can I get my 30, 40, 50 K a year and the Mercedes and all that? I've never earned with the exception of two years. I worked as a substance misuse specialist and they paid me 26,000 pounds a year, which to me was 
I, I was a king. <laughs> I spent it all to go to Ant on an expedition to Antarctica. Um, but other than those two years, I've never earned in my life more than I did in the Marines 25 years ago. So to give to put that in context, I was taking home about 800 pounds a month. I've never in my life earned anywhere near that. I've always been around 400, 500 pounds. Um, and the point, I, yes, I've, I've had a house all my life because I bought one when I was 22. That is, has been a good investment. But my point is I've lived, worked and travelled 80 countries across all seven continents, achieved all of my dreams, every single one, whether it's becoming a pilot, skydiver, podcaster, author, you name it, I've done it all for less than 500 quid a month. Just want to put that out there for our young people that might be thinking you've got to, you know, nail that career and become the, get the next position. And then you turn around when you get to 50 and think, oh dear, what have I done with my life other than having three cars in the driveway, all of which are rusting away anyway. So, No private jets for you then? No, not, not, I'm, I'm interested in happiness and not wealth or, or balance. It, for me, it's more about, it, it's, a, it's a big lie, James, you know, it's just a huge lie that money can make you happy. I mean, yeah, it can buy nice things. We, we know all the cliches. It's about this, there's other fundamentals in life that are so much more important. I, I've found to, you know, to, to learn so that when you wake up in the morning, you're full of the, you know, what we talked about, not, not that the depression of, well, what do I do? Or my life's not going where I want it to go. And, oh, if only I had this, or if only it was next, you know, I'm going on holiday to Ibiza in the summer that my life will be good. It's like, no, 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 no. You've got to wake up every morning and be bang right on it mentally. And there's a certain, I won't talk about it now because I, I, talk about it a lot in my in my commando coaching and stuff but there's just very simple philosophies and, and lifestyle tweaks minor tweaks you can you can adopt that gets you up here up here and firing as I call it um and if everybody was only earning that 500 pound a month and eating meat maybe you know once a week imagine the benefit to the to the planet in the terms that we're we're sort of talking you know wouldn't have to be devastating the rainforest that is socialism though if you if you regulate and you, you say right you're you're only that's all you need that and that, and that is where you are always going to come to conflict with people you know i that I, I i get what you're saying and i and i i agree that you can have an amazing uh, life of experiences and you don't have to spend huge amounts of money but, you know, this, the competitive system of reward, financial reward, it does drive innovation. Um, and it has, and it has dr driven the advancement in humanity. So I, 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 I do believe in a liberal de democratic capitalist system in that, in that respect. And, you know, if you want to have children, you want to pass, you know, good education on them and all those things, you know, you, you, it, it, there's a cost to that. There's a cost to live in, in, in nice uh, parts of the world. You know what I think? What I'm saying is more balance, more um, 
the right regulation um, and you know the recognition and the implementation of uh, proper treaties. Um, but uh, what I'm saying more generally is we're ent entering an even more unstable period because there is no one force or no you know America wanted to be the, the global global policeman. We don't have that anymore, uh, and China isn't interested in the rules-based international system. Clearly, Russia isn't. And so we're in, in, into a period um, internationally that is very unstable. So what I'm trying to say to you is, you know, I, I do support our state, uh, our system, and I, I, I agree you can have tremendous experiences. You don't have to, you don't need to be a millionaire. You really don't. But I think most people will want to have the opportunity to earn a, a, de a decent wage and have a balanced life um, living, in, living with job security. Um, and, and, you know, the system we have in the UK has and does do that. Um, coronavirus is obviously now going to be a, a very, a bit of a game changer for the next few years. And so how we rebound and how we restructure the country and the economy, you know, unfortunately it's over to the politicians. Yes. James, can we talk about Africa? Because Mother Africa is just one hell of an experience. And I'd love for our, for our friends at home who haven't had the, the you know the 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 honor and the eye opener of visiting like the continent um to just get a flavor of some of the things like for example safari um seeing a lion in the wild for the first time this kind yeah, of I mean, I, absolutely I, I, well I, my my africa there's you can't yes it's a continent but it is so diverse in terms of everything from you know, people, people, language, cultures, um, and, and climate, and, and climate, and environment, and climate and terrain. It's very difficult to talk as, as just one place. You know, my my first two experiences of on the continent were Egypt, which is really in the MENA region, the Middle East and North Africa, which has the much more um, Arabic influences, and of course you've got that amazing diving. But actually. The real Africa I, I first experienced was with the Royal Marines when I uh, went to Sierra Leone. And that was the most fantastic experience, even though the jungle had been pretty much de devastated because of the conflict there in 2001. The people were unbelievably friendly. It's a stunning country. Beaches are exactly like Barbados, so pretty much on the same latitude. So that really sort of uh, stole, my, stole my heart in that respect. And, you know, you know, the, the country that I only really know from the, the movie Blood Diamond, which is a, a bloody good movie, um, it, it is absolutely fantastic, has so much potential. And I've always thought it's tra tra a tragedy. You know, it isn't one of the major, major places on the tourist trail because it has so much more to offer than some sort of Mediterranean countries go to. But in the recent, my recent history um, with veterans of wildlife, I've been in Cameroon. And that is a very interesting place in West Africa because of the flora and fauna. And the jungles there um, are just fantastic. You've got West Lowland gorillas, you've got almost every type of primate, and you've got forest elephants, and these amazing ancient hardwoods, these are ancient jungles. Absolutely stunning to visit. And you know, when you walk in these places, apart from sweating your tits off as you do in the jungle, as, as you'll know from your time in the military, um, you absolutely feel like you're walking in a planet Earth, um, David Attenborough documentary, because you know 
every insect is massive and interesting and noisy. Every bird, it's just full of life. Um, I'm you a huge can, fan of West Africa. You can say tits on my podcast, James, but um, <laughs> don't be saying that on Discovery Channel, please. <laughs> oh, God, the guys swear like hell on Discovery Channel, honestly. <laughs> yeah, we, we, no, uh, and if you want to talk about some of the stuff I've done in it, yeah, I mean, with, when we're surrounded by sharks freezing and really pissed off with the film crew, we, we are swearing and there's no word that goes untouched. So you mentioned sharks. What's this skydiving into shark infested? What, what, sorry, I'm, just, I'm using the cliche, the shark infested. I, I've got a brother in Australia that's absolutely passionate about the shark. He does so much to try to raise awareness and um, and to, um, to to make people aware of the harm that the shark netting does to to lots of innocent creatures. Um, so using loaded terms like shark infested, but that that's the media for you, isn't it? Well, the only thing that's infested is planet Earth with people. We are like an infestation. You know, the densities are lost is simply ridiculous. Um, and no, there's no such thing as shark infested. They live there. <laughs> we don't need to be in the ocean. Um, we based on conservation principles, but turned much more into an adventure. The first uh, uh, documentary I did, um, show I did, was um, in 2018. And it was based on the premise of the USS Indianapolis, the ship that was carrying the atomic bomb. Um, that ship got sunk by a, a Japanese torpedo boat, and the sailors ended up in the water. Many, many perished. Over 700, or might even 900 perished at sea, mainly from the elements. But some got taken by sharks, which believed to be mainly oceanic white tips and some tiger sharks, uh, which is obviously to be just slowly eaten at sea is, is appalling. And it became a very famous movie. It was also part of the inspiration for the Jaws movie. My, I, I wanted to make a documentary about that when Paul Allen, the, form, the Microsoft founder, um, who is now dead, he, found, he was a deep sea expeditionary, um, expedition leader and funder at, uh, through Vulcan, his uh, charitable organization. And Vulcan found the coordinates of that ship, USS Indianapolis. So my, my theory was that given that illegal and unregulated fishing over the last 50, 20 to 50 years has absolutely dem dem devastated fish, and particularly sharks and the oceanic white tip that's declined by more than 90% globally. And in some areas, it's declined by 99% from being the most abundant shark in the sea. I wanted to do an experiment on that spot and say, look, if you put people in the water now, you will not see sharks. The only thing you've got to worry about is the, elephant, is the, is, is, is the elements. And, so, and, and Discovery bought into that idea. They bought into the idea of, uh, former military people being in the water surrounded by sharks. They didn't buy into the conservation side of it and really showing the plight of these, these animals. So I got myself signed up into this kind of radical ride, um, adrenaline-based ride, where we, we didn't even film it in the Pacific. We filmed the first one in the Bahamas. And it's really it's good that we did that because we, we said in the film, we couldn't film an interesting show in, in the Pacific because there are so few sharks. We had to do it in a protected area in the Bahamas. So we ended up 48 hours called De Gelden I, who survived the shark attack. He's only got one arm, one, one leg, and he's got a very interesting story. Um, he, and we, we spent 48 hours in the water, surrounded by oceanic white tips, which was just an incredible experience. A year later, we were commissioned by Discovery Channel, this time to go to the, go to the Pacific, and um, we skydived into Palau, which has massive, which is the world's first shark sanctuary, and has 
massive marine protected areas. So it was just it was just an interesting interesting start. We jumped into the water. There weren't actually that many sharks, to be honest. Um, but it was really really fun thing to do. Is it Philip Palau in the Philippines? Yeah, Palau. Well, uh, it's near the Philippines. Yeah, or am I thinking of Palo, Palawan? Isn't it in the Philippines? Yeah, um, yeah. Um, but it, it's a it's a very it's a very biodiverse area, uh, and so we d- and we we did this oh, document. Yes, yes, it's off Indonesia, the yeah. Philippines, Indonesia. Got you. So yeah, we went there uh, and we made the documentary. But you know, it, it's as much about entertainment. The, these types of the shows are we're, we're communicating a message, conservation message. But you know. TV, TV isn't there just to educate or, or, or to be an environmental activist, to be a bunch of environmental activists um, communication mechanism, even though I want to communicate about sharks and about the environment. TV is a very powerful medium for, for getting a big audience. And, and, and like we've been telling the story over the, the course of this podcast. Had I not done these types of TV shows, that would have been less interested, less interest in my voice. So I see, I see it's a very powerful combination doing documentaries, whether that's sort of silly but adventurous fun stuff like parachuting into the sea stuff I always did in the military career anyway but it makes this really good visual content um and you know they called it shark infested waters and there weren't that many sharks um and we really had to encourage them to stay with us because they're just not that interested in us but um it certainly made for an interesting shark week episode and um and you know I've I have in the in the pipeline a couple more documentaries I'm set to film um one coming up in Florida um, with bull sharks and one coming up um, off the coast of Japan with great white sharks. So we've got more more in the pipeline, which is going to be more science-based, um, more more on the theme of um, environmental and shark conservation issues. But we, we have to add the adventure and the fun to it. Yeah, it's, um, there's a similar thing when I'm sort of doing my YouTube videos that there's a there's this kind of, uh, allure of the military and it and so i t- and, and as you said it is it, it is it is quite it's quite an exceptional career to be a young young marine um and of course you know you get you get people attracted to your story and then off the back of that then you can sort of speak your your kind of truth as a as i call it um so yeah what um Oh, I had a question. Um, not like me to forget anything at, at 50 years old. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, Veterans for Wildlife. Can you tell us a bit more? Who founded the, the organisation? Veterans for Wildlife was founded by um, a former Royal Marine um, and a group of people from South Africa. So as you'll know, British military has a lot of uh, Commonwealth soldiers from um, Zimbabwe and, and South Africa in particular. And when those guys left, they went back to South Africa. A lot of them had reserves or farms, and they've just realized the extent of poaching um, was out of control. And the skill sets of the, the anti-poaching units, APUs, or the rangers, was just not good enough to counter how, how sophisticated the illegal wildlife networks had gone at annihilating you know, all sorts of animals, such as you know the rhino, rhino like you see behind me. They realized that skill sets from the police and the military are very applicable to the front line of conservation, especially in, in training ranges. So the charity was founded to um, enhance the capacity of those on the front line, the rangers who protect wildlife. 
and, and at great risk, many die. You'd have seen in Virunga National Park this year, 14 rangers lost, lost their lives. So it's, it's dangerous work because of the wildlife and also from the poaching networks. So it was founded just over four years ago, coming up for five years. I got involved four years ago and I've been involved as a director developing it. And I've taken it into new countries and partnered it with um, Zoological Society of London. We've been working in Cameroon. Um, when we've been working in Namibia. Uh, we've worked with the World Conservation Society in Belize, um, the Grimetti Fund in Tanzania. And, and all of it is um, focused on the conservation, the training of rangers. Now, the, the name Veterans for Wildlife is loaded. It sounds like it's um, only military veterans. It really isn't. We, we work, we take on board people from board force, intelligence, police, and people that have been conservationists or rangers all their life because we found that the best mix of training uh, people in the conservation world comes from, from a variety of backgrounds and not just the military. Indeed, lots of people from military backgrounds don't work in conservation particularly well. So the charity, you know, the charity is growing, going from, going from strength to strength. We're, we're based here in the UK um, with extensive partnerships across, across the world. Um, and, you know, we've had to take a bit of a step back because of COVID. We've not been able to have people, our instructors, out on the ground training rangers, but we're, we're due to get out pretty soon. Which brings us back to the, the other point. Um, uh, tourism, you mentioned safaris. Tourism is a big part of conservation. You know, it, by having a, a wilderness space that makes money, a safari area that makes money because tourists are willing to go there, it preserves the animals. If people aren't traveling there, and, and because of coronavirus, people aren't traveling to, to these, these um, amazing wild spaces to see the animals, that revenue is gone. That revenue is needed to pay for rangers. And so without the tourists there, there's no money to, look at, to, to pay for the rangers, which means poaching inevitably starts to increase. And we're now starting to see evidence of increased poaching across the world because the protection of the rangers isn't there because the reserves can't afford them. But also by the very fact that if people are out there, um, civilian tourists out there enjoying the wildlife, that's dominating the grounds. You, you're essentially a patrol, a mobile patrol with cameras, which means that you're denying that ground to poaching networks. So you've got this double whammy of the, you know, the day-to-day -day safari trucks going out, which dominate a huge amount of ground. They're not there. There were less rangers because there's no money, but there's still huge demand for um, traditional medicines, traditional Chinese medicines, there's still massive money to be made by the illegal wildlife networks. So this is a bit of a perfect storm at the moment. You know, not enough resources to protect, but loads of demand um, from people who want these products. And um, so we've got our work cut out in the future. Yes. James, let's talk, if we may, um, Ricky Gervais is coming into my mind now when I think about people that are very big on conservation or, or certainly they have a massive passion for the, for the animal kingdom, which, which we all should because we're a part of it. Um, but there's this... That, can you explain to us, when you have these shoots, how, uh, you, there's this argument that actually that benefits the, I, I'm not putting this argument out, don't, don't crucify me folks, but there's this argument that that benefits the kind of um, husbandry of, of managing the, the, for example, rich American dentist, 
willing willing to pay two hundred thousand pounds to shoot a giraffe. This giraffe is on its last legs. It's it's got some I don't know it's broken leg or something. It's not going to survive. The guy can shoot that one. It, it can can you just talk about? I, I know I'll, you can tell from my waffling. I don't really. Hunt, you're, you're talking about hunting industry. When you talked about the shoots, I thought you were talking about as in the filming shoots. Um, ah. yeah, okay. Shooting, 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 hunting. Right. This is a highly emotional charged subject. And the voice that is drowned out is always going to be the middle line, the one that is, um, you know, had looked at both sides of the argument and really looked at it scientifically. Um, and the ones that are going to, are, will be the loudest are, are generally the extremist hunters, the ones that you know, believe they've got some sort of biblical right to hunt, you know, God's produce. The man has, has the right to have domain over every creature on earth because they've read something in the Bible. Um, or uh, the extreme um, so-called, what I call so-called conservationists, um, who are animal rights activists, and they will not see any harm done to any animal anywhere, even if it's for food. Um, and those voices are the loudest on this scene. Now, within that, you have exploitation of wildlife in the canned hunting industry. Um, you, you, you saw my Planet, S, my SO, Planet SOS, which is my Mail Online, also Mel Plus show, environmental show, exposed, um, where Lord Ashcroft exposed the canned lion hunting industry. There is an industry that exploits animals. Um, they breed animals in disgusting, confined conditions. They're not wild. They release them and then they're shot by tourists. They're massacred by tourists. You know? And there's no benefit, financial benefit to communities. There's no benefit for conservation and there's no benefit for wilderness spaces. There's also another side to shooting, which is management. If you look at deer management in Scotland, if you leave an area, because there are no natural predators, there will be too many deer and they destroy the ecology of the land. Uh, and no other species can thrive, which is why you see these bare mountains and these glens and highlands. It's the same with over, over ranching. It completely destroys biodiversity. If you don't have wolf packs, if you don't have lynx in somewhere like Scotland, you'll have too many sheep and it will destroy the countryside. You therefore need managed shooting. So that then comes down to the question, do you allow, do you have professional hunters that are paid for by the government to keep the numbers down, which has zero benefit for the local economy, or do you allow people to have paid licenses to go up there and shoot them and manage them? But that money goes into, there's money that goes into the local industry because they go to pubs, they go to, um, you know, they, they travel there, they need accommodation, and so it generates a local economy. That, that, that applies to Africa as well. And so that, that shooting is nuanced. You know, sh shooting endangered animals or capturing endangered animals has absolutely no place. But there is a, there is, there is a, a strong, legitimate, credible argument for management, which involves killing of animals, whether it's for food or to manage their numbers. Um, and then the debate comes down to, do you allow um, tourists to play part of that, where there could be an economic upside for local communities or to manage that land? That argument is, has been entirely lost in the British press because you'll get huge pylons from celebrities and organizations that really don't necessarily understand this industry. From a personal point of view, you know, I, I am not pro um, shooting megafauna or, 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 or you know, I'm, I'm not interested in shooting um, deer or anything like that. 
but I understand that it has to be done. I'm not a vegetarian. I'm not a vegan. I eat meat. I enjoy it. I've tried to reduce my, my, my consumption. Um, I try to be conscientious, but you know, if I had to, and I have done killed an animal to eat it on survival situations in the military, um, I'm not afraid of, of, of killing an animal. So I think there's, there's so many issues here, but the main are it's the case of banning all hunting. It is a case of banning trophy hunting, shooting lions, shooting lions, absolutely no requirement to manage them. But it's not a case of getting on the bandwagon of banning all types of hunting because it is a very important part of um, managed ecosystems where it, the wilderness area is not big enough to run itself. Like the Serengeti, you don't need to shoot there because it's a self-managing system. It's huge. It's got enough predators to control um, to control to control the biosphere there. But in, in, in smaller net, smaller areas, you cannot let a single species get out of control. So you know what I'm trying to say is it, this argument is that there is so much more nuance to the debate of trophy of hunting and, and trophy hunting is the one that everybody talks about because of course it's clearly wrong nobody can support trophy hunting but it's very difficult i would say to say you can't you wouldn't allow people to to shoot uh, whether it be you know, kudu impala or deer in britain because there are too many of them and allow licenses to be sold of which money will go into it is likely to go into into communities it's very controversial um and, it will, and, it, and that argument's not going to go away. So I've sort of highlighted for you the, the different different thoughts there. And I, I still struggle with my own conscience of, of, of where, to, where to be on it. I think just one, just one, just to pick one tiny point out of all, all of your, your, your well-presented um, case isn't the right word, but, you know, your summary of the situation, it's... It's that gloating photo in front of this beautiful creature. It's utterly beautiful. It doesn't matter whether it was dying of some disease and it needed to be put down. It's the, hey, look at me. I'm completely controlled by my ego and I am not a man or a woman. I'm a pathetic creature that thinks that this makes me a good human being and it's What a terrible lack of education we have in this day and age to 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 allow our fellow human beings to think that that's cool. That yeah, I agree. I, I find it difficult. I don't I don't understand that because you you know if you shoot somebody in combat, you wouldn't pick their head head up dead or you know their body and and, and gloat with it. You know you, you just accept that you know that's a past situation you've been in. You know shooting for food or management. Um, I don't have a problem with, and I, I un and I understand that there is that huge. There is it is a gloating industry. People for some reason see it as manly to shoot an animal. I don't understand it. You, it, it's not it's not a fair game. It's not a bare knuckle boxing match. That's fair game. You know, sh if somebody's armed, and you go into a boxing ring, you're armed, and the other person isn't. How's that fair? So how is it fair to go into the wilderness and shoot and then gloat about it? There's nothing hard or tough about it. I'm a hundred percent in agreement with that. I think I'm just making the case that we have to understand that, um, you know, shooting is the word, the top, topic you discussed. Shooting it is part of the load, some of these economies and in, in, in these wilderness spaces, um, especially across Africa, uh, and, and management's part of that. But you know, I have absolutely no time for trophy hunting, and yet any a trophy hunt really come is a trophy hunt when somebody's 
doing it for a thrill to hold a head you know, at the end of it. Yeah. What I'm saying is the complexity of this argument is that, you know, if you're a landowner, do you allow people to pay for licenses to do it on your behalf, um, which might sustain wages, um, you know, keep your business afloat? That is what I'm, I'm and, I, and, and I make a big distinguishment between management and I'm talking about whether it's overpopulation. Yeah. Um, because the ecosystem is broken. I'm not talking about um, uh, charismatic species. I'm just saying, I have been trying to educate myself on all sides of this argument and understand it from the point of view that, uh, of, of the industry that says it's, you know, there is such thing as ethical hunting. Um, I, I, um, I, it, it is difficult. You know, I, I have spent time at many reserves, um, private, public, and you, know, you, can, you can see it's no, you know, the, the great, great conservationists uh, in, in places like South Africa um, and Tanzania, Botswana, great conservationists um, can be pro-shooting uh, and others aren't. It's not, it's not as black and white as you see on Twitter. Mm. Yeah, I just should point out, James, you're not on trial here. You're, you're the ambassador on behalf of these animals and uh, I think you, you, you put it across very well. Um, just one second. James, you've been an absolutely fascinating guest. I've thoroughly enjoyed our chat. I hope one time we get to do this in person over a beer or a Coca-Cola or something and we, we can may, maybe extend it to all day. Um, yeah, it's been thoroughly fun, thoroughly fun. Um, I've got a few things here. I've been making some notes. Um, the guy who had his leg, he had his, was it his calf muscle bitten off by a bull shark? Mm. I just wondered if you'd met, met that chap because he's kind of like a real authority on, on that species. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm due to be uh, filming a, an episode on bull sharks. Bull sharks are, are generally quite terrifying because they're such confident, bullish animals. They, they, they're said to have some of the most, the highest levels of testosterone and therefore aggression of any species on earth. But my first encounter with shark when I was 13 was with bull sharks. And so I didn't have those childhood prejudices. I'd not read any stories. I just thought it was amazing. They're just brilliant creatures. Became fascinated by them. That incident on Shark Week created a huge number of issues because um, there was a shark attack. Somebody's badly hurt, disfigured, have a life, has a, essentially has a life changing industry and if you think actually the number of shark of, of series that are made on shark week and on national geographic and bbc about sharks the number of people that go diving every year compared to the number of incidents you have it's unbelievable if you made that many episodes or hours of film about cows you'd have way more deaths because they, <laughs> they can get pretty aggressive and trample you. So what it shows you is that, you know, these, these, these animals aren't there to kill us. We do occasionally end up, um, you know, in their way, in harm's way. And, you know, I think there was a death yesterday off the coast of Maine. Would have been a great white shark. Um, but, you know, the, the amount of encounters we have with sharks um, compared to the annual death figures just show you um, we're, 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 we're not these mindless killing machines. Now, bull sharks are 
you know, they are, they are on another level of danger because they inhabit um, the littoral coastal area that we're most likely to inhabit. And they love low light conditions. They love silky, murky conditions around river mouths or, or when you've got a, a, a wash and um, you've got those, those, poor, those poor visibility conditions because they, they are stealthy ambush creatures. So we're in their domain a lot and they're aggressive. And that's where a lot of these incidents occur. Bull sharks are responsible for a, lot, a large proportion of, of deaths and of course, a, a large proportion of bites. And if you've got <laughs> a 500 or even a 300 pound to 600 pound fish with razor sharp jaws with a, a bite pressure, you know, 20 times or more that of a human, it's going to cause you real problems. Uh, you know, and I can't remember that guy's name you're talking about, but yeah, he lost his limb. But, you know, the guy I'm, I'm friendly with and I've worked with in my shop week shows is Paul de Gelder, Australian naval diver. He, he lost his leg and arm to a bull shark attack in Sydney Harbour 12 years ago. So, you know, you've got to be wary and respectful of these species. Yeah. I met uh, Vic Hislop's wife. Is that a name you're familiar with, Vic Hislop? I mean, the Vic Hislop who has demonised sharks and killed hundreds of great whites and many species. It's just yeah. the enemy of wildlife, a complete lunatic, you know, who, who's an absolute oxygen thief to planet Earth. That one. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the... Um... Uh, kind of a, a bit reminiscent as well of the guy in the Jaws film, isn't he? That this utter hatred for sharks. Um, yeah, he's got a um, like a shark expo down there in um, Australia, Early Beach. I think it's somewhere that kind of that kind of area. But um, yeah, I was gonna, <laughs> I was going to ask if you've heard of him, but 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 clearly you have. Yeah, he's a vile man, and uh, he's done a lot of damage to sharks. Um, no more so than the sort of illegal fishing industry um, or any of those, or, or the shark finning industry. But yeah, I, I, it's extraordinary how people can take, have this vendetta or persecution of a, a single species, which is just doing its, its own business. You know, if, if there's one species you want to get upset at, you know, go and look in the mirror. Mm. Yes, well, we did, I think we don't do that enough, do we? No, well, exactly. So, you know, I, Shark Week has, has always been a bit of a, a double-edged sword in terms of balancing entertainment because, you know, television is about entertainment and you, it, it's run by advertising, so you need, you need to get bums on seats watching it and, 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 and conservation and science. And it always comes in for criticism. But, you know, for me, things like, you know, National Geographic, Shark Fest and Discovery Channel Shark Week, you know, open up to a younger audience at the amazing species that are in the sea. And, and any, any intelligent person will see that, well, not, not just that, these programs show you these amazing species and, and, and show people interacting very safely with them. And we're all overawed and always interested in predators because of course something can go wrong. They are, you know, if you, if you step into a cage of a lion or you, you, you take a stroll around um, the Serengeti and you come into a path of, of, of 
a pack of hyenas, a leopard, you know, you're going to, you're likely to come into harm's way. You're entering into their world. But ultimately, I think uh, these types of uh, TV series and shows are positive um, for the cause of these species. Yeah. There's a, James, there's a lot of footage coming out now, people diving with great whites, isn't there, and snorkeling and, and being really kind of up close and personal. Yeah, there is. And, uh, you know, I always, I've always, you know, up until recently thought, I, I, you know, I want to, has many experiences outside the cage of the great white, but there's no requirement for that. There's no requirement to put yourself in harm's way in their world. Um, but the, the selfie industry, um, the social media industry has created this drive for more extreme experiences with wildlife. The famous thing you're probably alluding to is Ocean Ramsey, who came across a very large female great white shark um, off of Hawaii last year. What that does is it generates a whole new industry of more people wanting to get that type of shot to promote their own profile to, 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 to try and create this aura of invincibility and how awesome they are um, and how, you know, how much they are in tune of the natural world. Again, the, the, my jury, personal jury is out on that because she's a great shark ambassador. Um, she, does, she promotes conservation and gets the message out to a lot of people. She really cares and raises money for an awareness about um, the, the global loss of sharks. But, you know, conditioning people to think that it's okay and safe to, to, to interact, touch um, apex predators, um, probably send or does send out the wrong message. And ultimately, um, you know, if the shark does harm somebody, it's probably going to get, end up getting destroyed by authority. So it's not doing them any conservation favour. So I think there's a way to interact with these species, um, to be in the water with them. Uh, and, you know, where possible, you shouldn't try and put yourself in a position where you're actually going to touch them. They come towards you and you have to guide them away. That's appropriate action. But you shouldn't try and deliberately interact with a wild animal yes it's never going to end well is it not not for the animal or the or the or the human i i was um when i lived in hong kong it was very interesting the first week i was there there was this almost bizarre or or should i say random series of shark attacks um i say random because it's I haven't heard a lot of it, but there was just this one period where several people were attacked all within the space of a week. There was a a diver that was, um, well, had his limbs chewed off, basically. Um, There was a a pensioner out swimming who was eaten. There was photos on the front page of the, I think it was the China Morning Post, because they don't hope they don't pull any punches over there, right? Of this uh, friends dragging their friend out of the water, and on the front page of the national newspaper, this guy's missing a leg, and it was, whoa, like this rainbow of, um, you know, veins and and stuff hanging off his thigh. It was, it was quite, um, quite savage. But did I also hear they've banned shark fin soup, haven't they, in Hong Kong? No. Oh, no, they 
No, shark, Hong Kong is the capital for processing shark fins, unfortunately. There are some brands, there's a very good campaign run by Wild A's uh, to educate people to uh, educate people in China and Hong Kong um, to stop using shark fins or stop, stop, stop consuming them. But no, no, Hong Kong is the, is the epicenter of the shark fin trade. Um, they also campaign, they, they lobby to try and get firms to take it off the menu. The reason you don't get many shark attacks in, that, in, in those bays is because they've all been fished out a long, long time ago. They would have been, they'd have been abundant there. Bull sharks, tiger sharks, great white sharks. And there are great whites off the coast of China um, and Korea. Now, the biggest, the biggest great white shark ever recorded was off the coast of Taiwan. Another one, very large females are down in that area. Unfortunately, that, that piece of coast has been utterly de- devastated which is why it's such a surprise when they do, do rock up. If you were to leave that area for a period of time, you know, and stop fishing and, and actually reduce the, the commercial boating activity, eventually they'll come back. We have, to, we have to create space. I hope we really do, do move towards the aspiration to create 30% of the, of the world's oceans as protected areas. But we're very far from that right now. Yes. Well, thanks to your excellent efforts. Um, yeah, let's hope things move in the right direction. One last thing, James. Can we can we talk about skydiving? Yeah. Got to talk about skydiving. It's. <laughs> I saw Point Break one time, uh, the old Point Break, not the new version, and I thought. I'm going to do that one day. <laughs> it's just what you can throw yourself out of an aeroplane and just fly through the air and, and then, then pull your chute. <laughs> Did you, had you done any of that before, um, before your military career, any of that sort of thing? No, no, I hadn't skydived before. I did my jumps course when I was in the Royal Marines. Then I did some other parachuting courses. So yeah, I got a, got a decent amount of experience uh, in the air um, and, and on squares. But I really did all my uh, civilian freefall training when I left the military. So I've been, you know, I've been in the wind tunnel for, I've got a few hours in the wind tunnel and I've skydived. You know, it's, it is one of the brilliant gla- gla- glamour sports. I absolutely love it. But there's an enormous amount of waiting around and admin, um, which you don't see you know, at airfields, in, in really weird places as well. And I think that's why it's slightly, of course, it's an extreme adrenaline sport, which puts people off. But sometimes the location set up isn't particularly accessible. You know, I'd love to see a, a, a skydiving club in every county in the UK and just make it, you know, accessible. But, you know, I live, I live in southwest London. Really, we've got Hinton... Um, which has one plane, or you have to go down to the Army Skydiving Centre in Netherhaven. You're, you're forever waiting to get loaded onto these planes. One of the best places to do it is uh, probably Dubai, but it costs a fortune, and it's a fortune to do it there. And, and often it's too hot to jump because um, the plane can't get up. So, you know, I, 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 I love it. I've always thought it's, it's the freest you feel because you, you're absolutely living in the moment. Um, and I want to do more and I want to get better at free flying. And I recommend anybody that's considering it, just go, go do the course. It doesn't take that long. Um, yes. But prepare I yourself for a lot of time hanging around on the ground. I've inspired at least one person to skydive. Ben, Ben, who was a guest on my live show 
last night. Very, very nice man. Um, Ben's, Ben's off to do his skydiving ticket. I did mine in Florida, James, and there it was like a yo-yo. You went up, you jumped, you got your shoot packed as quick as you as you could. I, I wasn't trained to pack mine, so I paid one of the packers to do it. Give you your shoot back, you run and get on the next load, <laughs> and up you go again, and you can you would do 10 jumps in a day easily. Um, That's a lot. The weather's quite predictable in Florida. Uh, at certain times of the year or the time I was there, it, you'd get these huge, like, I don't know if they're called storm heads or these these towering black cumulus. Was it cumulus cloud? Yeah, cumulus, yeah. Yeah. And as a pilot, you would fly you could fly around them. You would sort of literally just keep, keep, you know, keep, keep away from them, obviously. But it was all, it was all quite predictable. Um, when you did your military jumps course, did, did they still have the balloon? No, Paris got rid of the balloon. My dad did it out of the balloon, so it's in the Paris. Um, no, they, they it's all done C-130 now. At Western, still at Western on the green, but now they've got the A400 and they, they can, you can jump out of C17, Globemaster, which is pretty cool. I've not done that. I'd love to do that. But yeah, they, you know, um, static line, and for people that understand that, static line is when you, you jump and the chute is attached to a line on the plane so it pulls it for you. That is a very quick way to deploy troops. Um, that's why they do it because of close proximity. Uh, but you know, there's nothing like free fall. Free fall is the way forward. And I, and I, there's there's kind of there's two types of skydivers really, aren't there? There is, you know, the free flyers, which is what you're making beautiful, you know, dancing type movements when you're not under canopy, when you're in the sky, and you usually have about fifty to one minute ten of free fall. Or you've got the the canopy specialists that like to to swoop in near the ground, you know, and th- those really are the the daredevils, because if you get that wrong, you only have to get it wrong by half a meter and you're going to break your pelvis or you're dead. Yeah. And that's, that's where a lot of skydiving accidents happen. The guy who packed my chute had two broken legs. He'd, uh, he'd mistimed it. Um, there's, there's kind of three, isn't there? Because you've also got your base jumpers. Oh, yeah, I mean, the non-plane jumpers, yeah. Well, okay, there is more because obviously you've got your wingsuiters as well. Um, and they're taking it to another level. Yeah, you jump, there's one thing jumping off a bridge or a cliff. Then you've got the, 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 the proximity wingsuit flyers. That's another less level of just madness. <laughs> I just, I am probably over the hill of learning skills to that extent where I'm committed enough to do over 2,000 jumps to have the skills to do that. Um, yes, it's expensive. It takes a lot of time. But if you want to do that sort of, it's cool, it's crazy. You need serious dedication. Um, and you know, when you at least when you're when you're skydiving, you've got a spare, you've got a spare canopy, you've got a spare chute. So if something goes wrong, you either you can either sort it out. You usually have the time to sort it out when you exit a plane, and you've got a spare um, reserve chute. You, there is no tolerance for error in base jumping, or especially proximity wingsuit flying, where you're flying down a mountain. So these guys, are, they're taking it to a whole another level nowadays. Yes, there's quite a few um, tragedies in that sport, aren't there? It doesn't, you don't seem to have a long life expectancy, even for the most professional. The, the one thing goes wrong, and it, I guess it all just happens so fast, there's no time to rectify it. Um, what do you think then? Because I'm 
fortunate enough. I've done two balloon jumps, two mil- military balloon jumps. That's showing my age here, probably. But um, in a way, that's almost like a base jump, isn't it? I know base jump, you generally chuck your drogue chute, but you can also get somebody to hold your your chute, your, your I don't know, what, I don't even know what you call it, the line that pulls your... your, your <coughs> yeah, your, yeah, well, that... It is, it's because it's you've not got any full momentum, you haven't got any ground speed, then you get that, that's the sensation of losing your stomach when you jump out something like a helicopter or a balloon. You know, I will be, I will be doing a balloon and helicopter parachute jump, but, you're, but we're talking about being over 5,000 feet. Um, same like jumping out of paramotor, you can do that. I guess it is a base jump, but it's, it's, to me it's, a, it's more like a static skydive because... I don't actually know what constitutes the difference between base jump and skydive. I, I always thought it was off a, a static feature as a base jump, whether it's a building bridge or, or rock face. It's buildings, buildings, aerials, spans, and elevations. So anything from the ground that goes up as opposed to a, a flying machine of sorts. I, I yeah. where, where, so that's where the balloon jump and the... Uh, uh, paramotor jump or anything or helicopter jump they are skydives and um, even if they're low to the grounds but you know there's a lot more places offering balloon jumps that, that that's absolutely on the list good james listen you've been absolutely wonderful as i said this i've just thoroughly enjoyed our, our chat thank you so much for coming on the bought the t-shirt podcast the gentleman certainly <laughs> you've not just you've not just bought the one t-shirt um would you be able to come on our live show, James, and answer? I'm sure there's just going to, we're going to be inundated with questions. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, very keen to answer questions. And I'm, I can imagine the issues that will come up, but uh, yeah, let's give it a go. Yeah, well, issues is fine. You know, we you, you can't make an egg without breaking an omelette, and I'm, <laughs> I'm good with that. So, friends at home, um, write your questions from for james and, and myself below the video um that this i'm really looking forward to already james please just stay on the line but again a massive massive thank you to you on behalf of humanity uh, for for the work that you're you're doing and the example you're setting um gonna be humble now aren't you <laughs> just do my do my thing day to day you know yeah. Look, thanks for having me on. It's been it's great, and I look forward to speaking uh, live there. If you have any questions, uh, it's going to be great. And to our friends at home, massive love to you all. Thank you for watching another episode. Uh, if you could like and subscribe, great. And we'll see you next time, friends. Thank you for listening to the Bought the T-shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe, and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username Chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris.thrall. Thank you.